Welcome to Sapiens Talk Back, a podcast series brought to you by the Archaeology Center's Coalition and Radio Science at the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. This series has been developed in partnership with season four of the sapiens.org podcast in order to discuss new approaches to changing archaeology stories and who tells them. Our goal is to dig deeper into the pressing issues that the Sapiens series raises for the practice of archaeology. My name is Olivia Graves, and I'm a PhD student in the Classics Department at Cornell and a member of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. And I'm Henry Ziegler, a graduate student in the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. In this episode, we continue the discussion that began in episode four of season four of the Sapiens podcast, a conversation that examines efforts to decolonize the construction of heritage and practices of collecting. We have two special guests with us today. Tiffany Fryer is the Kotzen Postdoctoral Fellow in the Princeton University Society of Fellows and a lecturer in Princeton's Department of Anthropology. She also acts as a consulting scholar to the Penn Museum. Welcome, Professor Fryer. Thanks, Olivia. I'm glad to be here. Joining us as well is Sven Hawkinson, professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Washington, curator of Native American Anthropology at the Burke Museum, and a former MacArthur Fellow. Welcome, Professor Hawkinson. Sorry, thank you. Thank you for having me. We are very pleased to be joined today by a panel of graduate students from Archaeology Center's Coalition member institutions that will help guide our conversation. They will introduce themselves in the course of our discussions. In addition to probing the issues raised in episode four of the Sapiens series, we will also be discussing insights provided by two recent publications. One by Professor Fryer and Casey Disserens Morgan, entitled Heritage Activism in Quintana Roo, Mexico, appeared in the 2021 book, Trowels in the Trenches, Archaeology as Social Activism. Our second touchstone text is by Professor Hawkinson, Holly Barker, and Sarah Gonzalez. Changing Museum Narratives was published in 2021 in the Rutledge Handbook of the Archaeology of Indigenous Colonial Interaction in the Americas. Let me start the conversation with a question for both Professor Hawkinson and Professor Fryer. Museums tend to value and market superlatives, the oldest, the first, the greatest, the largest, the most beautiful, in scare quotes, etc. In your efforts to decolonize museums in the wider heritage industry, are there strategies you employ to address this rhetoric of superlatives and superiority? Are there circumstances in which the community members you work alongside want to assert the earliest or best representations of their culture's belongings and history from their own perspective? Or is this approach tied too intimately to traditions of colonialism and and extraction? I'd love to start with that because, um, well, first, when we redesigned the, the new Burke Museum, when we did the Cultures of Living, um, we intentionally changed um, how everything was cataloged and shared in that exhibit. We took out the dates. There are no dates on any of the culture pieces. We consulted with communities on which pieces they wanted shared and how they wanted them shared. We gave them the authority to tell us what was important, but we also put the name of that culture piece in their language first, and then the English translation And then if we have a quote from the community about that specific piece, we put that in there. And as a curator, I didn't interpret any of them. So just starting with that is one way you can change. 
and really kind of disrupt this practice of showing the oldest or the best and that, and really just saying, hey, let's engage with communities. Let's make it relevant now. Thanks, Olivia, for this question and, and Sven for your for your answer. I think my thoughts are are really similar. Um, where I where I've done my primary field research in um, Quintana Roo, Mexico, working with predominantly Maya speaking uh, folks out there, um, what we see happening in the area is just like this huge boom of heritage tourism, right? That is really centered on drawing international tourists to the Maya Riviera for, of course, beautiful beaches, et cetera, but also to consume um, Maya culture. What I think is really unique about the space that I've had the privilege of working in is that um, in our partnership in a town called Teosuko, Quintana Roo, where the caste war of Yucatan began, there is a locally run, though state-funded, museum um, and in that museum, to your question, the sort of oldest, first, and greatest, what we see happening is the presentation, in some ways, of this history of a great indigenous rebellion, right? So you have this, this idea that the caste war is one of the greatest indigenous rebellions in the Americas. This is, though, a sort of a, a line pushed by the state uh, as part of their reasonings for incorporating the war into uh, the state's heritage. But what I think is most exciting in the museum is what local community members have come to just call the community room. Um, and this is where folks bring in family heirlooms, uh, where they bring in things that they've found uh, while farming, while, while making what's called milpa uh, uh, farms, small plot farms that they have uh, encountered at various uh, historic places um, when, you know, out hunting or, or gathering medicine or um, whatever it may be uh, with their family members. And they contribute these items to the museum and the museum who, which is run by all folks from the community, then um, catalogs, you know, who, who brought it in, what are the stories, similarly to what Sven was saying, what are the stories that are associated with it, and what do the folks who are uh, donating these objects actually want uh, to be remembered about them. And I think that's a really special practice that's, that's happening in that space, and that sort of disrupts this um, need to to focus on the more dramatic aspect of the community's history. Thank you for that answer. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, and thank you so much for having me and my colleague here. So my name is Aaron Bentley. I'm a third year PhD student in the Joukowsky Institute for Archaeology at Brown University. So to start with uh, Professor uh, Hawkinson, you're pursuing a career in ethnoarchaeology, but well, in your field, and especially your work at the Burke Museum, how do you move past or help others to move past the stigma that's often associated with both ethnology and archaeology? And by stigma, I mean the fact that certain practices are extractive, they're institution-focused, or they're focused on gathering and preserving, quote-unquote, disappearing information. Well, thank you. That's a... That's a really long question. I mean, not a long question. I keep you a long answer if, if given the right amount of time. In, in doing ethnoarchaeology when I was in Siberia with the Nanets, um, the idea was to, for me, uh, when I was doing the work, 
was having not only having the privilege to work with them, I wasn't looking at them as being in the past. I was looking at them as being in the present and looking at and working with communities to say, how can I understand how you guys are creating sites so we can better interpret the sites that are that we can link to your community? But also, I really tried to think about, instead of it being extractive, um, here I was working in an area where th their land was going to be taken because they're sitting on one of Russia's largest gas reserves. And I was thinking about how can I document, use a scientific documentation to document this land so that in the future, should they ever have an opportunity to deal with land claims and deal with these issues, they can go and say, well, there's several dissertations and hopefully there's more since I've been gone. Here's a dissertation that talks about land use, that talks about connecting the archeological sites to the communities so that they have something that's a tangible piece of evidence um, in their, you know, what they do or what they're doing. But when I'm looking at teaching ethnoarchaeology, um, I try to engage the students so that they are thinking about not just how are you collaborating with communities, not consulting and not going in and doing something and then leaving. How do you collaborate with communities and how do you start to think about this as a lifetime lifetime relationship? In that process, it, it gets the students to start thinking about the ethics of what they're doing, not being just an extractive thing. How do you actually get it so that you are working with the community um, and returning that knowledge back to them so that not only can they use it in any form they want in terms of you know, historical knowledge or even local cultural knowledge, but how do, the, how do you work with them so that um, we are starting to change what we do in the field? I could, I could keep going, but I'll stop there. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you both Erin for the wonderful question and Dr. Hankinson for a wonderful response. My name is Ana Gonzalez Martin and I am too a third year PhD student in the archaeology department at Brown University. My question is now for Dr. Freya. In your article, you mentioned programs such as the MACHI, the Mayan Area Cultural Heritage Initiative, as an example of embracing activism and taking a political stance in the process of heritage distancing that um, some indigenous and native communities are dealing with. What do you think about the role of similar activism in, in academia? Is it imperative that this activism be included in academic best practices at all? Thank you, Anna. I think I think the question of the relationship between activism and academia has been one that uh, we've been with for a very long time. I think every generation sort of sees uh, the confluence of certain kinds of activism alongside academia, either activism through academia or activism in direct disruption of academia. This is a big question and, and I'm not sure that I'm the person, you know, to say whether or not uh, activism ought to be, um, you know, included in academic best practices. What I know and what I can speak to is that for me, uh, embracing social activism, social justice work as part of the labor of archaeology that, that I have 
created uh, for myself and alongside my collaborators, that's a sort of non-negotiable space. It just, it, we cannot do the work that we want to do without leaning into the kinds of organizing that is already happening in community, the kinds of self-advocacy that are already happening among communities. Um, and to not see my position as an archeologist and an academic um, in opposition to my dedication uh, to certain kinds of activists work, right? And so, you know, is it something that everyone has to do? I don't know. I don't know that that's everyone's calling, but I know that I find heritage practice in this way, archaeological, museum work, historic preservation work, whatever that might be, to be more substantive when it is put to the service of, of advocating for the communities that we collaborate with and that we belong to. And so for me, that's that's where I think it stands, you know, my work will always be tied to those whether others choose that, we'll see. Thank you so much, that was great. Henry Ziegler chiming in here. Uh, my question is for Professor Hawkinson. Um, I was particularly interested in the role of fishing in your journey to archeology span that you mentioned. Um, so I wondered if maybe you could speak to the role of this kind of embodiment of practice as well as situating it in, in the present, and then how that is related to your museological practice. And perhaps um, one of the things that I was particularly really taken by was the, the um, construction of the model Anyaks. And if there are kind of opportunities in the, the museum sector for reaching out and, and doing these kind of interesting out, uh, outreach activities to bring material culture and living culture into people's hands in the present. I mean, growing up fishing, I mean, I spent 20 plus years of my life every summer fishing, working with my hands, observing and really taking into account, learning how to take things apart and put them back together that really helped. And also the hard work that goes into that. Um, what you, yeah, your the last part of your question about uh, material culture, I mean, it's, I wish I could show you guys what I'm doing now with the, my students, my ethnarchaeology students. Um, this last two weeks, we actually scraped bear gut, bear intestine, and they processed it and they inflated it. It's now drying in our culture gallery area. Um, and we're going to split it down. But traditionally, we use um, the intestine to make raincoats. And so taking that stinky part of culture where it's like you're dealing with something that's pretty rancid, getting the students to experience that both hands and smell, um, and then having them go through a process where they create a material that actually works just like Gore-Tex, um, and really opening the students' eyes up to looking at the world from a very different perspective. Um, so I think that um, my own experiences of growing up with this traditional materials made me feel, well, makes me feel it's very important to teach the students, the next generation of archeologists doing this kind of work to, to think beyond just, oh, I wanna look at the stone tools or the ceramics or the features. There's a lot of this intangible culture that is there for us to start to um, not only learn and think about, but um, engage with the communities in terms of the stuff that they have to share still today. Um, a lot of that is transformed, but there's still a lot there that we can 
work with museums and museum collections. And you mentioned the Anyak, and that's a, um, a project I started in 2014, where we took model Anyaks, we made those. And then the following year, the community said, let's make a big one. In 2015, we made two full-size Anyaks that are functional, one at the Burke Museum and one in the village of Akiak. And so going from something that had disappeared from my culture to putting them back into a living context and, and using these life experiences of, hey, how do we do it? How do we make it happen and trying it? I mean, honestly, I didn't know whether it would work or not. And I could say that it didn't work the first time we got in the Anya because we rolled really quickly, like within two minutes. <laughs> but we learned from that lesson. We learned we need to put 300 pounds of ballast. And so we learn as we're going to reintroduce knowledge, but it's, I, I, I actually love looking at the materials, but then getting my students to really start to think about the world from a very different perspective of what's knowledge is embodied within these cultural pieces. Thank you. That was excellent. I was particularly taken by that when you talk about the stinky culture and then kind of the, the smelly bits. So thanks. That was great. Hi, uh, this is Olivia Graves again. And, uh, you know, Henry brought up Dr. Hawkinson, your reflections on fishing. And I was also taken when you said that when you got in, interested in archaeology, you went from making $60,000, I think you said, a summer fishing to $2,000 um, practicing archaeology during the summer. And, uh, and that also made me think about kind of the economic undercurrents um, and pressures in both of really the suggested readings, both from you and from Professor Fryer, uh, Professor Hawkinson, with your comments on the necessity of museum fundraising efforts, and that being a large part of, of being in, in museums, uh, and Professor Fryer, with your discussion of the, I think you call it the mega tourist industry in the Yucatan, acting as a, a neo-colonial power even, uh, and I was just wondering how you, how do you navigate economic concerns as you strive to best serve the communities you work alongside? Well, um, I'll start. It's um, one of the challenges is, speak bluntly, not being a sellout on that, um, selling yourself, and for me, um, raising the necessary funds to do the Anyak. One of the things I try to do is saying, hey, if if you're going to give funds, can you give it directly to the community? so that I know that the funds go to where they need to go and not to um, another place where they get sort of the stock top gets taken off. Um, so I try to figure out how do I do that with communities so that the, the money is going to support the community and the youth that we're trying to reach and work with. It is a really fine balance in terms of how do we raise the necessary funds without losing the purpose of why we're there. And that's something that each one of us has to sort of address in our own roles of how are we going to work with communities um, and how are we going to make sure that we support the communities with the, fun, the funding that we have, but support them to get the funding so that they can continually perpetuate the kinds of programs they want to have. It, it's a real fine balance. I think in, in our case, the question of the economic is always sort of front and center in terms of the need to make economic viability, economic emancipation sort of front and center as part of this advocacy through archaeology, this advocacy through museum 
work. The communities that we partner with are communities that have um, traditionally been predominantly agrarian and are moving into the, the tourist, the sort of mega tourist region um, space. But that means that the relationship to money in that space is, is always front and center for, for them. And I think, you know, sometimes when we um, get to talking about the good work that archaeology could do, the good work that museums could do, we want to shy away from uh, talking about money in this space. But for, for Teosuko, where I work, for other local communities, uh, having economic opportunities in town is really, really important. And archaeology could be one of those mechanisms. Museum work could be one of those mechanisms of, of bringing financial resources into the community. And so that's okay. It's a, it's a good thing to invest in that, right? But I think that part of what we, we end up missing is the fact that those investments have to be have to be transparent and they have to be shared open, you know, openly with community members. So if, for instance, myself or my colleague Casey or, or, or our colleagues uh, who are associated with the Penn Cultural Heritage Center are able to receive grant monies to bring down to help sponsor some of our work for, for a year or for a season, that money that we that we receive, we then take those budgets, we then take you know, all of the accounting of that to the community members that we partner with and say, this is everything that we could gather. It's all on the table. What do you want to do with it? How do you want to put it to work? And we don't sort of obscure that, that side of things. The other thing to keep in mind for us is the fact that, um, again, as I mentioned before, um, amplifying the organizing work of community members is, I think, an important part of, of my own work. And what we've seen happen is that often community members have submitted their own sorts of grants, et cetera, to the government, to local organizations, um, successfully received them in terms of being told that they, you know, that they were going to receive those monies and then those monies never actually come through. And that's really disheartening, right? To see folks um, doing really hard work to bring financial resources into their communities so that their youth, if they choose to leave, might want to come back, <laughs> right, in the future um, so that they can continue to grow their own goals, et cetera, uh, and, and foresee what, what the community wants to become, um, what it has been to continue to support those things, right? And to see people put in so much work and then to have those things be nominally granted and then never come to fruition can be really frustrating. And it's just a constant cycle, right? Um, and so, you know, I think I think this question of the economic is, is going to continue to be um, at the center of what we do. and. and embracing that it is part of what we need to be worried about and, uh, you know, working to better these sorts of economic opportunities is, I think, going to allow us to sort of free ourselves of the, the notion that sort of money is a dirty word if you're trying to do good work, right? Um, I think like, yeah, fundraising is real. Um, a lot of things don't get done without money, but there are sources out there and, and being transparent about where that money comes from and how it's going to be used, I think is, 
is one way to sort of assuage the the economic concerns that might be front and center in the short term. Thank you, Tiffany. Um, I'd like to add a couple more things because we went and struggled with that as well in Kodiak, where we tried to do the tourism, the you know, come and dig and be a tourist and that, and it failed miserably. Um, but the wonderful thing out of that is the communities we were able to convert that from these tourist invested spaces into community um, places where students from around the island can come and learn more about their culture and be engaged with um, re-embracing that cultural knowledge. And, and you are right, we need to be open and honest about how we are engaging with the money um, and how the communities are spending it because that's one of the biggest challenges um, I think our communities have because if somebody gets something, it's like, well, why don't I have it? And that's a reality. Um, you know, the finances are there, the money's there, especially where I, I wanna say more, where having access to jobs is, is a challenge. So, and those are things that as archeologists, we should all be aware of. How are we influencing the communities we work with, especially when we hire certain individuals? Um, the other thing that we've tried to do through say the Burke Museum and investing um, with our artisans is we are trying to treat them like professionals now. Instead of saying, hey, you should volunteer to come and do the work. It's like, no, we are gonna pay you the going rate of, $100, $150 an hour to come in and do demonstrations so that we are valuing them and their time. And we are putting that up front so that hopefully other institutions will follow in that practice of supporting um, indigenous artisans, indigenous community members who are doing these kinds of, this kind of work. So it's, it's holding ourselves accountable and you know raising money to make sure that we're paying them the necessary value there were. This has been an excellent discussion thus far in terms of both Professor Hawkinson, you talking about the value of, I guess you could call it intangible cultural heritage, and then also uh, Dr. Fryer, the discussion, well, both you and Dr. Fryer, the discussion regarding the, the frustrations and the difficulties of getting the community members to be engaged. So specifically for Dr. Fryer, you mentioned in your article that certain institutions, such as specifically those in the heritage conservation industry, are often very top-heavy and also rather loath to say authority, let alone voice, especially when it concerns local indigenous communities. So I was wondering if you could, I guess, discuss a little bit why you think that is, where does this reticence to, I guess, share basically come from? I mean, what do they think will happen if they include local communities and stakeholders? And then also, I know we've already just talked about some ways of getting uh, stakeholder communities involved, but what are some maybe additional ways we could help them to overcome their understandable reticence of being involved and continuing to, to hope for being heard appropriately and fully? Thanks, Erin, for this question. I think when it comes to questions of local authority, one of the big actors at, at play in Mexico and in, and in Teosuco and Quintana Roo, where I work, um, is known as INA, the Instituto Nacional de Antropología y Historia, um, which is 
sort of maybe a ministry of culture would be a good way to, to think about them. And they are the folks who are responsible for granting permits for archaeological research, who fund a lot of anthropological and archaeological research, etc., in the region, and are also responsible for historic preservation efforts uh, throughout throughout the country. Um, and in Teosuko, it has been a complicated relationship with with Ina, partially, I think, because you know, to your question, when you, when you say they're sort of loath to share authority um, and what do they think might happen if they include local communities, I think part of it is that actually there isn't much thought to include um, local communities, that it's, that it is not seen as something that one ought to do to fulfill one's professional responsibilities as a heritage manager, as a, a preservationist or whatever it or whatever your role might be, right? To bring local communities in a capacity that is more than sort of um, dictating what is going to happen in order to protect and preserve this particular heritage resource, right? Is often not a very much concern to, to these particular authorities. And when local communities want to be involved, when they want to um, be also seeking and giving, or when they also want to be giving permissions, <laughs> right, um, to, to have outside researchers, et cetera, working in community, um, they're seen sort of as a, 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 a lesser permissions grantor, right? One of the things that I really appreciate about, about Sven's work is, you know, the conversation around what it means to walk into a space and sort of assume that you have the right to be there and that you have the right to, um, you know, do things like take photos or be researching, et cetera. And unfortunately, many of the sort of heritage industries, both governmental and private that are in operation in this space, operate that way, but also academic archaeologists who are coming from all over Mexico, the US and the world to work in this space. Maya are no strangers to international archaeologists and anthropologists um, sort of strutting around <laughs> making claims to their heritage, right? And the kind of work that we're trying to do, the kind of relationship that we're trying to create to foster is one that upends that upends that sort of propensity right and that really says no like the local communities that we work in they are the permission granters sure we have to get permits from the government if we want to do things like excavation it's just a legal requirement but that doesn't make it a more important permission than the permission that comes from working alongside community members and what it means in that space, to be in that space, operating in that space. Thank you. Thank you. Um, this is Anna again. I know that we've touched on several of the things that I'm about to ask before, but I'm sort of interested in delving into them deeper. Um, so for, for Dr. Hackinson, but also Dr. Fryer, um, in terms of curatorial practices on archaeological artifacts, I often wonder about the decontextualization of objects as they are exhibited in museums. 
So when we think of the ontologies of material objects and we try to decenter the scopic visual experience of Western curatorial practices, how could we best and more ethically approach a contextualized display of artifacts? If especially, I'm wondering if native indigenous and local communities um, consultation is the only resource available, what other avenues of, of action can we take there to, to be more fair? Well, first, if you can work with a community, um, I think that would be the, the first priority, um, starting with them and making sure that you've tried to reach out to them. Um, and then, I mean, even what we've done when we don't have something from a community, we're not gonna put another person's voice into that piece. And what we hope to do, we designed our exhibits at the Burke Museum so that we can change out our text on those cultural pieces um, as soon as we have a community member who wants to share something about it. And we can add it as we grow. And so we are not trying to assume we have the ability to interpret that piece, even though uh, when we put it on display, we didn't have somebody. I'm not gonna put my own interpretation. And both myself and my colleague Holly are, are really adamant about that. Um, and it's like, okay, if we are gonna work with trusting, building trust with communities, we have to practice what we're gonna preach. So I think it would be important to share that cultural piece, but if you don't have something from the community members, don't put something in there until you get it. Because these cultures are still living. Um, and, and that's something else I didn't talk about was um, in our text, we talk about the native peoples, us, as living and present tense. And that's something I try to stress with visitors is stop putting us in the past tense. Stop putting us in passive voice. If you're going to have exhibits about us, we are here, put it in present tense and put it in active voice. So being really proactive about even how we're using our words. So um, in terms of you know, contextualizing those, it's, it's showing that we're still here. Um, and then if we don't have information, holding off and not trying to assume we can speak for it, but having the, trying to connect with communities that can. And, and it's not, it's, it's a lot of patience and it's, it's a lot more work, but at the end result, following that practice, um, the knowledge you are able to share, I think is that much richer because it's coming from the communities. And, you know, and there's other things you could do, but uh, that's what I would start with. And that's what we're trying to practice now. And seeing maybe in a couple of years, if you ask me how things are going through the Burke, I'll let you know. But um, two weeks ago, we had a uh, lady come in and say, hey, as a, that's my grandmother who made that piece. When I was a grand, when I was a little kid, I would go into her home and string needles for her. I'd string 50 needles every weekend so that she could bead this piece. And so we're gonna add that to that piece that we have on display now. And that brings that story to us in the present, but shows that living connection. Thank you, thank you so much. Okay, um, uh, Henry here again. I wanted to come back uh, real quick for a second to the Frank talk about money that we were engaging in before. Um, and a, a question for Dr. Fryer here. 
Have the communities with which you work in Quintana Roo have uh, ever rejected funding based upon its source uh, or questioned the aims of these funding in its institutions? And uh, related to that, uh, what kind of ethical concerns do you consider when you're seeking uh, or evaluating the sources of funding for which you apply and then bring to the discussion table for your local collaborators? Yeah, the money, the money always brings us back, doesn't it? <laughs> I think a simple, cool answer to this question is sure. Uh, folks have rejected funding from places before. Typically, though, it's not it's not necessarily the funding that is rejected, but the conditions that come along with those that funding, right? Uh, so when folks are willing to give money for a, a local project, but uh, want it done in their name or want it done in a certain way, that, that gets rejected all the time. People have no qualms in saying, yes, we could use the resources. No, we will not be pawns to the way that you want it done. And I think with respect to, to the, the article that you all read or the chapter that you all read from our work um, for today, it discusses, my colleague Casey discusses her work with, um, with another of our colleagues, Socorro, on helping to document toward preservation efforts uh, the colonial houses that are in, in Teosuko. And what we found was that over the last few years, Teosuko, it, it really in the course of our, our being there, it's been really interesting to watch. Teosuko has gotten a lot more both statewide and national attention for um, its various heritage resources, including these really magnificent, huge colonial structures. And one of the concerns, I think that is a very real concern and a warranted concern for many folks in town is about the prospect of dispossession and what will happen um, when other agencies, whether that be ENA or um, tourist agencies, or when um, individual politicians think that they might be able to bring money to the table uh, and use that as a as a stepping stone for their own agendas um, that really are misaligned with with the community's agendas. And then we watched this happen a couple of years ago when one politician was interested in restoring some of these colonial homes and um, brought money to the table and then just kind of started working on them without actually speaking to the people who were living in them um, and doing all kinds of things that were not exactly, uh, one would certainly not position them as exemplary of any sort of community collaboration, uh, let alone generally uh, ethical practice, right? Um, but the idea was that, well, with this money, if I pour this money into it, not only will I uh, secure some sort of political power, but I will also be investing in the kinds of heritage tourism that I want to see happen in this particular place. And it just completely cuts the community out, right? That kind of work, that kind of funding, yes, people react against it. Absolutely. And, you know, and so I think those, those kinds of considerations are, are always on our minds. Well, <laughs> there's so much more for us to discuss, uh, but unfortunately that will have to be the last word for this episode of Sapiens Talk Back. Professor Fryer and Professor Hawkinson, thank you so much for sharing your insights and experience with us. 
Sapiens Talk Back was developed in collaboration with the Indigenous Archaeology Collective and the Society of Black Archaeologists, with special help from Dr. Sarah Gonzalez, Justin Dunavant, and Ayana Fluellen. Special thanks also to Chip Caldwell and the production team at Sapiens, the Wintergren Foundation for Anthropological Research, and House of Pod. This episode was made possible by financial support of the Joukowsky Institute for Archaeology at Brown University and Columbia University's Center for Archaeology. We want to thank our panelists for leading our conversation today, Aaron Bentley and Ana Gonzalez San Martin from Brown University. Thanks also to the member organizations of the Archaeology Centers Coalition for supporting Sapiens Talkback. You can find more information about their work at archaeologycoalition.org. Radio Siams is a member of the American Anthropological Association's podcast library. This episode was produced at Cornell University by Adam Smith with Sam DeSotel as our engineer and Rebecca Gerdes as our production assistant. Cornell University is located on the traditional homelands of the Gayagohono, the Cayuga Nation. The Gayagohono are members of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, an alliance of six sovereign nations with a historic and contemporary presence on this land. The Confederacy precedes the establishment of Cornell University, New York State, and the United States of America. We acknowledge the painful history of Gayagohono dispossession and honor the ongoing connection of the Gayagohono people past and present to these lands and waters. And we encourage you to investigate the indigenous histories and living communities connected to the places that you occupy. Be sure to tune in next week for the next episode in the Sapiens podcast series, More Than a Mountain, a look at how we study and don't study sacred sites. And then the following week, check back in with us here at Sapiens Talk Back, when our guest will be Professor Nick Laluk from the University of California, Berkeley, and Professor Ora Merrick Martinez from Northern Arizona University. I'm Olivia Graves. And I'm Henry Ziegler. Thanks for listening.